We're doing a new series starting today for Advent and Christmas where we are kind of trying to look at some of the art of Christmas, specifically music, and uh, we're focusing on a different hymn each week. So obviously this, this Sunday has come that long expected Jesus, as you could see from the sermon title and from the fact that we sang it. Uh, we're going to be looking at different hymns throughout the, the whole season of Advent and Christmas. But if you look at the front of your bulletin, there's a painting um, so each week I'm gonna, we're going to have a different painting, a different Renaissance era painting that kind of depicts, highlights our theme and our scripture for that Sunday. Uh, and the painting this week, I, was, I did not get the um, descriptions to Vicki in time before she went on vacation to include in there. Same thing with the moment for missions. So that's why those were missing. Those were not Vicki's fault. That was my fault for uh, not getting them to her in time. But the Sunday, um, our painting is from Domenico Beccafumi, and it was painted sometime around 1545, uh, and the title of it is The Annunciation. I think that it sits at the Met Gala today, if I remember right. Um, so go Google that, and you can learn your own self on that. Um, so uh, Domenico Beccafumi, if you wanted to go Google and learn more about that painting. But this morning, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke for The Annunciation. Hear now God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will receive in your, or you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now you, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is, in, this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. The hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, was written in 1744 by Charles Wesley. Now, I do a lot of teasing of our Methodist cousins in our, my preaching, uh, and that's only because I have many friends who are Methodists, and actually I really love them dearly. Um, and they're kind of like close cousins to us in our faith tradition, being bo both from the British Isles and being kind of around the same time in terms of uh, the reformations that happened 
happened and grew up our two churches. Uh, we have some theological differences, but our two denominations here in the United States, the United Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church of the USA, are yoked together, with, which means that we share ordination rights. So I went to school with a ton of people who were getting ordained as Methodists. At the same time, a lot of us were getting ordained as Presbyterians, and we could technically work in each other's churches, uh, and they would transfer theoretically, would transfer each other's ordination back and forth with just minimal questioning. So I have a deep respect for Charles Wesley. At some point, probably during Reformation Sunday, I'll talk a little bit more about his life and who he was. But uh, Charles Wesley was especially known in his Reformation in the English church in the 18th century for writing hymns. Um, Wesley was a very musical man. He was a poetic man. And so Wesley wrote over 6,500 hymns himself. 6,500. Many of the hymns that we sing on a Sunday morning that we enjoy throughout the year that Brenda beautifully picks for us week to week, many of them are written by Wesley. Right, Brenda? And so we still sing his music today. And uh, it's amazing the kind of thoughts that he had and the theology that he had in his writing of his songs. Now, if you don't know anything about uh, Methodism, early in the days of the Methodist tradition, the preachers were itinerant preachers, which meant that one preacher would serve multiple churches in kind of a rural area, and they would ride around on horseback from church to church, and they would preach the same sermon to multiple churches. So long before we ever had satellite campuses with a pastor up on a screen, the Methodists were doing it by horse back in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so Charles Wesley was famous for having ridden around on horse from place to place to preach in different churches as he was reforming the Church of England and he was bringing about new changes to follow after Christ more faithfully in the church there. And so I imagine him in this story that, that about how he wrote, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I imagine him kind of sitting down, tired after having ridden a horse all day, and yet he chooses to do in his free time, if you know Charles Wesley's story, this isn't surprising, to sit down and to reflect upon Scripture. And so he sat down and he reflected upon Scripture for that day in 1744, Haggai 2.7. And he read this, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. And what's amazing about his reflection and his thought is as he sat there and prayed on this scripture, his mind naturally began to think about orphans because that's what you would think of in that last verse, right? That last verse is about God bringing in all the wealth, the nations filling up his house with wealth so that it might be shared with all and all would be found to be wealthy and have abundance in the Lord. And this was a promise that was going to be done in the messianic age, something that the Messiah was going to bring about. And so as he's thinking and praying on the accomplishments of the, of the Lord in Jesus, the Messiah, he thinks about the orphans of his own day. And he thinks about how these orphans have nothing and they're treated very poorly in the orphanages and there's not really anybody looking out for them. And yet scriptures, one of the main calls in the New Testament to the church is that the church would look out for who? You guys are quiet this morning. Interact. Come on. It's me. Widows and orphans. 
widows and orphans. Because in Jesus' day, if a man died, they were usually the sole way of making food and um, having a prosperous house. And so a, a woman and her children left to themselves usually were left to poverty, to destitution, to being pushed to the edges of society. And so for the church to look out for the most vulnerable, those who were most at risk for experiencing a suffering under oppressive poverty, it was for them to look after orphans and widows. And so in the same way, in, in the days of Charles Wesley, things hadn't gotten much better for orphans, maybe for widows a tad bit, but not for orphans. And so the orphans were treated pretty poorly. In fact, that plays well a little bit into uh, our, our, um, the writer of our play this weekend, Charles Dickens' writings, right? Did he write Scrooge? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> I've messed up a few of those details up here before. Uh, he, many times he has an orphan as kind of the protagonist of his writings, right? And they were kind of out of that same era because it was such a turn of the world in the worldview of most people who would have been reading in those times to have an orphan be the protagonist of the story. And so as he's thinking about these things, he writes down a prayer. And his prayer is come thou long expected Jesus. Literally, he writes that, that phrase down and then he writes this verse. Born your people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now your gracious kingdom bring. By your own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By your all-sufficient merit, raise us to your glorious throne. Amen. And he published that prayer. So that the church might see it and read it and, and it became kind of an Advent prayer. And then he wrote a, a first verse to it. And then later he set it to music, to a traditional hymn um, setting that, that many other songs were sung to and are still sung to today. And the church began to sing this at Advent and Christmas time. And the reason why the church began to sing this at Advent and Christmas time was the very reason why Charles Wesley thought of this idea in the first place. And that is that in the tradition of the Christian church, Advent is a time of waiting. And many times we kind of look at this time of waiting in the church as representative of the time that Israel waited for the coming Messiah in their years under God's rule. And they waited for millennia or more for the Messiah. And the Messiah had been promised over lots and lots of ages of prophets who had written and had told about what God was going to do when he came and he brought his anointed one, which is what the word Messiah means, to Israel to free them and to bring them back to the grandeur that he had, had given to them in the first place. And over the time of Israel's history, they kind of waned and waxed over the, the idea of the Messiah. There was times where they were obsessive about the Messiah and they were really waiting for it and times where they, they didn't really think much about it. Now, can any of you think of why there might have been times where they didn't think much about it? Good times were good. Yes, the times were good. In times of abundance, they had no real reason to be worrying about or thinking about the Messiah coming. They, everything was good. There wasn't really a pressure on them to feel like they needed salvation in some way. They were pretty confident in what they had accomplished for themselves. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Should, yeah. <laughs> and then in other times when God allowed them to be taken into captivity in various different exiles, the Babylonians and the Persians and you know, all these different groups, 
that came in and took over, they began to think more about the promises of God for this Messiah who would come and deliver them. And of course, it's natural as they found themselves in a circumstance that they didn't like being in. They thought more about God delivering them from that situation. I think many of us could probably think of times in our own lives where when things get pretty bad, we turn more closely to the Lord. When things get pretty good, we kind of forget that he's a part of our lives, right? And so we can sympathize, we can empathize with the experience of Israel in that millennia of waiting and seeing all the things that they went through as they waited for the Lord. And I think that as we look at our scripture this morning and the Annunciation to Mary, we can add that knowledge to that story and we can begin to think about what it would have been like for Mary to have been told that she was carrying the Messiah. You see, in the times when things were bad and where they were under the rule of someone else and they felt like God needed to deliver them, most every single girl in all of Israel probably thought or had at least the thought in their mind that I could become pregnant with a son. And that son could be God's promised Messiah. That is a hope that every single girl could have had. And so in this time in the first century, when Israel was under the oppression of the Roman rule, every single Jewish girl probably had thought in their mind that they could become pregnant with a male and that that male could be potentially the heir of David and the Messiah. So when Mary gets this annunciation to her, imagine what it must have felt like to have been chosen to be the one who would bear God's Messiah into the world. Imagine what it would have been like to feel God giving you this blessing to be able to be in this position to be the mother of the Messiah. It would have been an amazing thing for her. And no wonder in the chapter after ours, she writes this grandiose statement that we call the Magnificat. That is this great poem of her treasuring this idea that she is going to be bringing the Messiah into the world. And that all the hope of Israel was going to be born into this boy. And she was going to have the responsibility of raising him so that he might be who God wanted him to be. Imagine what it would have been like for Mary to feel that way. And she says this at the end of the annunciation to her. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Now, in our day, I think that people might have a little bit of a different reaction to that. What, God? You're going to make me pregnant? What? You're going to make me raise this boy? You're going to make me have to be responsible for the Messiah? We might have a different reaction. We might be like, choose a different servant. Not me, right? Choose someone else. Don't use me to bear your son into the world. Choose someone else. And yet Mary's response was, here am I. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Well, what does this have to do with us? I would say that we in our world and in our lives here in the United States experience so much abundance, so much uh, luxury, so much security and safety that it's unlike anybody else who has ever experienced life on earth before us. 
that we have so much that people could only dream of. Kings didn't live as well as many of us live. Even some of us who are below the poverty line or who are below the, the medium income line, whatever it may be, we are so rich in our country that we're filled with abundance. And most of us this week, we spent time, if you guys listened to my sermon last week, we spent time counting our Thanksgiving. How many of you guys spent time this week counting your Thanksgivings? Oh, man. Wow. Like three of you. Jeez. I'm going to stop giving out homework assignments. We had thoughts this week of all the things that we could be thankful for as we shared in abundance at our tables, tons and tons of food. How many of you still have food in your fridge? Yeah, you still have food from one meal, from one meal that you cooked. Uh, I'm going to have food for like the next four weeks because I way overdid it. We have so much in our culture that it's so easy for us, it's so easy for us to forget that God is a part of our daily lives. And that we are still waiting in hope in Jesus. Because the amazing thing about this season of Advent that parallels the waiting and the anticipation of Israel is that Christians have reckoned that they too are waiting for Jesus once more. That from the day he ascended before Pentecost, back up into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit, we have been waiting for him to return the same way that he had left. We're waiting for him to come back to make all things new, to, to finish the work that he started in his life, his death, and his resurrection here on earth by making the earth new in a new resurrection. And so we as Christians, we remember during the season of Advent, not just that Israel waited for the Messiah to come in the first place, but we remember that we ourselves are also waiting for the Messiah to return to finish his work. And so we cry out to him, just like John Wesley did, come, thou long expected Jesus. Not in just hindsight or some kind of thought, an idea of Israel's waiting, not in just memory of that, but real in our lives, we wait for him to come once more. At the same time that we experience incredible abundance, we live in this weird age where we also hear about every single bad thing that happens on the planet, planet right? Or at least if you read the news, you do, right? Or if you watch the news on TV, because they have 24-hour cycles they have to fill up now. And so they got to put every crisis on there. Every single bad thing that every politician is saying about each other, you got to read about it every single day. Or you got to hear about it in your news media some way or another. So we hear all these negative stories. And so our hearts become filled with anxiety and stress at the same time that we're experiencing incredible abundance, Right? And so our hearts should be driven to remember that our hope does not rely in this world. Our hope does not rely in the government that we currently have or any government on earth. Our hope relies in who, church? Jesus. And that Jesus is active and still working today. He's doing something now for preparation for when he comes back and makes all things new permanently. He's doing something now. He will come back one day. And he's doing something now. So guess what role you play? Anyone want to guess? No. You guys are Mary. The first to have the divine indwell her. 
the first to carry the divine presence into this world, Mary, is a prototype for every Christian who would be given the Holy Spirit to bear God's presence outside of our doors and to this world. And so as we celebrate Advent, as we remember the great hymns that we sing every single year, and we think about all these things that Israel went through as they waited for the Messiah and the hope that they were filled in, in good times and in bad times, for the promise that God had delivered to them. And then for Mary, who had been given this blessing of carrying God into the world, we must remember that that's our story, that we too wait for God to return. And that we too, like Mary, are bearing God into the world in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it's us who work to show the light of God, to show the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ to the whole world during this waiting time so that they might be in anticipation for the day he returns like we are. And that's what this table is about, right? Every single month we gather around this table and I say some words, Mike says some words, and then I say some words, and I end those words usually with what? The words of Jesus. That you proclaim my death until I come again. And so this table reminds us every single month that that is our duty, that is our job, to be in anticipation for the return of Jesus and to be his bearers into the world so that we might carry him to all those who are broken and lost and need his good news as well. So we come to this table ready to bear God out into the world, ready to surrender to his will, to do his will, and to share his good news with all we come in contact with. Friends, this week as we start our Advent celebrations, as we anticipate the coming of the Messiah and the baby Jesus, let us also anticipate his return at the end of time. Let us become bearers of God into the world so that we might do his will and that we might show his love to all people.